Hello friends, freaks, nerds, and geeks, all those of you unabashedly burning in the ephemeral flames of existence right alongside me. I'm your host, Jay Van Veen, and you're listening to Why Did You Make Me Read This, your weekly comic book podcast. You know, I think I'll begin today's show with an admission. Maybe something somebody doing a comic book podcast shouldn't admit, but it's the truth. Sometimes when I'm reading, let's say, a She-Hulk comic or maybe an X-Factor comic, I'll occasionally think to myself, what are you doing, Jay? You're still reading this kid's stuff. You should be reading Kant or Kierkegaard like you've always wanted to. You should be working on your goal of reading the entirety of Hemingway's catalog. You should be using your time better than comic books. And now, well, that's not entirely fair because some of those goofy superhero books are legitimately awesome and fun and cool and interesting. Like any other medium, quality varies. You've heard me say that before. But somewhere in the recesses of my mind, I still have this nagging feeling of needing to grow up. And it's reflected right back to me by these colorful picture books in my hands and amplified by the dismissive attitude towards funny books by society at large. And while that's most definitely a blend of my own personal issues and also some real-world attitude towards comics, there are certain books that transcend stereotypes of inherent juvenility about the medium. Two long-term comic book collaborators have been repeatedly making that point for almost two decades now. Brubaker and Phillips have a history of making subversive stories drenched in deceit and crime and violence and sex and drug abuse. And you could make a case for their stories being of the pulp variety, predicated upon those more superficial story elements. But once you get into the guts of these crime tales they're telling, you can't deny that it's something way beyond the titillation of cruelty and coitus. Down in the depths of the noir underworld they build, you learn something about the human condition. You get a sense of what actually makes these characters tick. What motivating elements of their history and lives drive them to make the bad choices and hard decisions that they do? Some of the characters, like the one in the story I'm talking about today, are true psychopaths. And even though you wouldn't want anything to do with people like them in real life, you are compelled to engage in voyeurism as you watch them work through the pages of the book in your hands. Because chaos is interesting. The high stakes of navigating a world where everything could go wrong at any given moment, creates a force that insists you engage with it. When you read a story like this, you just think, dear God, I'm glad this isn't happening to me. You take a madman and watch him work his ruination on the world around him as things start to close in, and you even start to root for him a little bit, only to have those feelings smashed on the rocks of him being a bastard as he drags an innocent into a world that no one should be forced to enter. This comic is an examination of a criminal, the world he lives in, the damage he does to those around him, and a few glimpses as to why he is the way he is. So, if someone tells you that comics are for kids, just pull out a copy of Criminal and say, shut the fuck up.
Criminal, Wrong Time, Wrong Place was written by Ed Brubaker, illustrated by Sean Phillips, and colored by Elizabeth Brettweiser. Beginning in 2006, Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips created an elaborate web of criminal underworld, largely taking place in an unnamed city and running over the course of generations. Running from about the mid-20th century to modern day, each of the different criminal stories tells the tale of the different denizens of this unnamed city, all of which exist in the same circles as the other characters we've read about. The main character in one of the stories will show up as a minor character in another story years later in the timeline and show up as an old person or a young kid. Many of the characters in this world are thick as the thieves they are, and some just know each other by rep on the streets. They exist in the underworld hierarchy, all having their own part to play. There's a criminal underboss whose son grows up to take the reins and rule the upcoming generation of crooks. There's a bartender who runs the gin joint they all drink at, and used to be a heavy in the syndicate, and still commands respect and fear from the same people that now buy booze from him. There's two sons of one of the most notorious tough guys in the city, one of which who turns out to be a fearsome military-trained killer, and the other who falls deep down an endless hole of booze and drugs and petty street crime. There's this young girl who was part of the group of kids that were all the children of various crooks in the city, who grows up to become an internal affairs detective. As we bounce through the interconnected lives and through different time periods and different tragedies, we're pulled in deeper and deeper into the ethos of this world. And because of that, you get more and more involved in the stories that just keep getting better and better as these creators hone their talents. Criminal is comic book crime noir at its finest. Whether it's an action-packed heist, a slow-burn revenge saga, the quintessential everyman in over his head, or a hard-boiled tough guy swinging his knuckles and pulling the trigger. Each story contains something that digs out a piece of the soul of the people within. It's tough lessons learned the hard way. I've said on this podcast before that I once heard Noir described as Greek tragedy for the working class. Well, nowhere is that pithy description truer than the pages of the comic Criminal. The name of the collection I'm covering today is Wrong Time, Wrong Place. It tells two stories, both involving the same man. That hard-boiled and notoriously violent tough guy with the two sons I talked about earlier, he's the focus of most of this book. He's a man by the name of Teague Lawless. The stories within are set somewhere in the late 70s, and he's beginning to be an aging man. His lifestyle, the constant smoking and drinking and stress and violence have left him looking weathered and wrinkled. But don't let that middle-aged gut fool you, he's still chock full of muscle and power. And it's great the way Phillips draws him. I mean, it's great the way Phillips draws anything, but that's magnified when he's putting Lawless on the page. Teague Lawless has a thick mane of blonde hair and the ever-present scruff of missing a day of shaving decorating his face. Deep lines lay in his forehead and smoker's wrinkles line the sides of his mouth. He always has deep bags present under his eyes that seem to pull his face down slightly and his nose looks like it's been broken more times than he can count. And better yet, 
Teague inhabits a world that just pops off the page. I mean, really, the way Phillips illustrates things is remarkable. An amazing attention to detail fills the page with a richness that never seems overly busy. Facial expressions convey a great sense of pain or fear or anger or whatever emotion is filling the character at any given time. Every character is distinct. Every character is unique looking and has their own mannerisms that bring them to life as you read the comic. Every setting seems like a real place and the man just crushes it. And the writing, Brubaker's writing, well, let's get into the story a little bit as we start to tackle that. Wrong time. The first of the two stories brings us behind jail bars as Teague has found himself serving time for something as innocuous as failing to appear in traffic court. And now he's doing a month stint for contempt. And you have to enjoy the irony here as this man has done plenty of shit in his day that should have landed him in prison for life. On the inside, Teague passes time by reading comic books. See, he's not all bad. The comic that Teague takes to is kind of a riff on Conan the Barbarian, a muscle-bound warrior of old that spends his days swinging his massive sword and ripping down any enemy that stands before him while spending his nights making love to some mysterious maiden that will inevitably betray him. And the story of Teague in prison is intercut with pages of the comic that Teague is reading while he waits out his sentence. Phillips changes up his art style and uses sepia tones and Ben Day dots to pull us out of the comic we're reading and into the comic that Teague is reading, as pages of the story are dedicated to the comic within a comic that runs like a parallel story of another tough-as-nails man dealing with a situation out of his control, serving like kind of an analog to the one that we're actually engaging with. And although I appreciate the uniqueness of this, Whenever those pages pop up, I'll admit that I kind of just rush through them to get back to Teague's story. And what exactly is Teague's story? Well, quickly into his short stint, Teague Lawless finds out he has to run down the clock and keep the killers at bay until he's a free man. You see, there is a hit out on Teague's head. He finds this out pretty quickly into his sentence as this massive moose of a man lures him into a quiet corner of the jailhouse and pulls a shank out on him. Teague is not the biggest guy in the game, but in terms of animalistic anger and strength born from hatred and hard living, Teague is most definitely a formidable force to reckon with. Teague kills this man, but not before the guy tells him that Teague has a dollar sign hanging over his head. And paranoia fills Lawless's baby blues as he makes a phone call trying to figure things out. His partner in crime on the outside asks him how things are going in there. It's fucking jail, growls Teague. Just assume everything is bad. So this is a rough story, obviously, and Teague is a rough guy having a rough time. But one of the charming elements of the tale is the relationship of this crook of an anti-hero protagonist to the jailhouse librarian. A little old man with deep wrinkles and silver hair that shares a love of the comic that Teague reads, giving the two criminals something to bond over. How the fuck did you get to be librarian? Teague asks. Autoerotic asphyxiation, says the old man, smiling. What? Last guy who had this gig accidentally hung himself while jerking off. I know it's weird, but it's the shit like this that makes me love this comic. Villains and blaggards talking shit and being weird. Real people as opposed to cardboard cutouts of insipid bad guys. It's Brubaker's writing that adds something so human to the macabre desperation that fills the streets of the unnamed city where these characters live in. In another scene, Teague is sitting by himself in the yard, 
reading his damn comic book, when the man who runs the prison walks up to him. And no, I don't mean the warden. I mean the king crook of this cement jungle. Mr. G is the shot caller of shot callers in this yard, and he has a message for Lawless. Now see, on the outside, Lawless works for a man named Mr. Hyde. And Mr. Hyde, he kind of runs the whole city, at least the criminal element of it. And usually, Mr. Hyde's soldiers get Mr. G's protection while they're doing time. See, it's like a business arrangement amongst the rulers of the underworld. But Lawless, Lawless fucked up. He was supposed to be working a job for Mr. Hyde on the outside right now, something important that he missed because he got himself locked up. So, Mr. Hyde has told Mr. G to deliver three messages. One, Hyde ain't the one behind the hit that's been put out on Teague's head. Two, but Hyde is pissed off. So the protection that his guys normally get inside, that ain't coming, i.e., Teague is on his own. Three, well, Mr. Hyde, he knows Teague is handy with his fists, and he doesn't want things going too easy for old Lawless. So now, this has got to happen. Oh, you got to be shitting me, Teague says as two jail guards walk up with their batons and beat the living hell from him. And while Teague's down on the ground, already bloody and beaten, they break his arm. And then... One of them goes as far as to steal the guy's comic book. Come on! Over the course of the next week, Teague Lawless embodies that barbarian warrior in the comic book he likes so much. He fights back at every attempt against his life, swinging his lunch tray into a man's face, using the plaster cast on his broken arm to break another fellow's nose, sticking fingers and eyes, fighting off attacks in the showers, using his animal ferocity for survival, as opposed to just inflicting damage in the lives of those unfortunate enough to cross his path. It's not till the seventh day that Teague thinks he might actually die inside of jail. This thought enters his mind as he realizes another inmate has dosed him with a heavy concentration of LSD, and he starts to trip his balls off. The comic art here goes psychedelic as shapes contort and the color goes from the normally dark and subtle tones of the book to this kaleidoscopic pastel of colors for Teague's acid trip. Tripping balls and all, Teague manages to fight his way out of the room and is about to be hunted down by some other convicts before the little librarian steps in to save the day. He pulls Teague into the back room of the library and the two wait for the drug to run its course while reading some comic books. It's a fun and high-stakes comic story that ends with Teague getting out of lockup and trying to figure out who put the hit out on him. This was the price of being an asshole. You never know who wants you dead, Teague thinks to himself. Teague's long-suffering wife asks Teague to take one of their boys with him as he goes out into the night, and he takes his older son, takes him along, and leaves him in the car as he goes in and beats a man to death in his house for screwing him over. Because that's the type of man that Teague is. The guy you've kind of been rooting for this whole time, at least a little bit. An asshole who finds it hard to narrow down the list of people who want him dead. The kind of guy who knocks someone's teeth out in a bar fight and can't remember why the incident even started. A thug with a family who he drags down into hell right alongside him. And that's exactly the plot for the second story of this collection. Teague Lawless, out there on the hunt once again, mixed up in every type of criminal caper a low-level hood like himself can involve himself in. 
dragging his oldest son Tracy out on the road with him as they jump from town to town, swapping license plates from strangers' cars, making ends meet by knocking over gas stations and convenience stores, Tracy, a child of maybe, I don't know, 11 or 12, forced to ride along for all of this, and even made to serve as a getaway driver for his dad. In the timeline of the publication of the criminal books, we first met Tracy Lawless several stories before this one, when he's a grown man. He's gone AWOL from the military. He's had most of his body and a good portion of his face covered by scars, burns from a fire he was in. A big man with a grimace that would make you cross the street, out to avenge the death of his brother. A fearsome and dangerous man like his father. But unlike his dad, he ends up to be a good man. And here, we're thrown back in time as Tracy is just a kid, an innocent, and a victim to the criminal whims of his degenerate father. This second story is called Wrong Place, and it's presented from the son, Tracy's perspective but it maintains the trope of interjecting a parallel story being told through the panels as Tracy reads a comic his dad has bought him about a kung fu fighting werewolf that hits the streets as a vigilante at nighttime. And just like the first story, I think it's a cool angle to play around with, but ultimately, I'm a little annoyed every time I have to get through a few pages of the story within a story. I'm not making an objective statement saying that it's bad. I'm sure there is some clever allegorical subtext I'm not taking the time to dig into, but I don't care. For me, comics are about characters. I love character interactions. I love good dialogue. I love character development and watching personalities build and unfold as they're thrown into different situations. I mean, that can save a comic for me, even if the plot sucks. And the plot certainly doesn't suck here. It never does in a Brubaker crime comic. But on the other hand, He's never presenting anything really earth-shattering or completely original in terms of plot, that is. He gives us an unusual take on familiar crime noir archetypes, which stand out on their own when set up against other material in that genre. But what really sets his work apart, as I've already said a few times, is the characters. What they do, the way they talk, it's just good writing. The second story is a bit more of a bummer. In the opening to it, Teague beats a man almost to death just for talking to his son, Tracy, at a gas station. They're on the run, and as Teague sees it, he can't take any chances. And Tracy is upset about this, but not really as upset as a young kid should be after seeing something like that. His father, being who he is, we can assume that this really isn't the first time Tracy has seen some fucked up violence. And by the end of this story... Tracy will watch his old man murder somebody right in front of him. But it's the initial beating that echoes through the rest of the story, as Teague and Tracy set up shop in a small town, and this funny, weird, young local girl tries to befriend Tracy. And Tracy initially rejects the attempt at friendship, then begrudgingly goes along with it, and ultimately has to push her away, because Tracy is a smart kid. He realizes he doesn't get to have friends and be normal. He can't. He knows there are consequences to that. The consequences of who he has for a father. Teague's reason for being in this town are kept nebulous. He keeps the truth away from Tracy, and because of the way the story is told, those details are lost to us as well. Teague is looking for a woman, and he has Tracy help him find her. 
Teague has sex with this woman, and by the end, she winds up dead in the trunk of his car. We don't know who she was or what Teague wanted with her, and at one point, Tracy pops open the trunk and sees her corpse. What? yells his father as he sees the shock on Tracy's face. That lady. She was nice, Tracy says. Yeah, she was. But she had a big mouth. And that's all the explanation we get. Tracy takes everything his father does in stride, a kid who never really had a chance at normalcy. None of the characters in the city with no name had a fair shake or a shot at the good life. It's just varying shades of darkness for them. But the children of Teague Lawless, they might have gotten it worse of all. The story ends with Tracy narrating as he and his father share a motel room. He talks about how as the night progresses, his father will get drunker and drunker. He'll start to tell his horror stories of the Vietnam War. He'll begin to cry and Tracy will pretend to be asleep. And in the morning, his father won't remember any of it. And although nothing excuses the monster that Teague Lawless is, in this single page of narration, we finally get some insight into what contributed to make the man the demon he is. Two stories here. One, a high-stake race against the clock as a man with his back against the wall uses the only tool he has of violence to keep his life. The other, a story about that same violent man and how he uses that savage cruelty inherent to his being to shatter the childhood of his own son. It doesn't glamorize anything. Teague is really anything but a sympathetic character. But that doesn't mean he's not interesting. It's that voyeuristic quality to escapism. Better them than me. But that doesn't mean I don't want to watch. I want to see the broken bones and busted spirits. I want to watch the damned get up and go to work the only way they know how. I want to root for the innocence to get through it, even though coming out the other side you know that innocence will be ripped away from them. I want to know what will emerge in that innocence stead. Will it be some kind of impossible resilience? Will they become like the bastards that robbed them of their only chance at a normal, healthy life? That's the thing about a comic book like this. We get to bounce around from generation to the next, seeing who turns out how, or even going back in time and seeing the things that made them into the characters we already know. Seeing the complex entanglement of a criminal underworld and the lives of the people in it or affected by it. And although we get follow-up, we never really get closure. Because one thing's for sure in the streets of the unnamed city, in the pages of the comic book that is criminal, there ain't no happy endings. Hey, good people. If anybody out there is interested in supporting the podcast, all I ask every week is that you maybe go over to iTunes or whatever podcasting you use and give me a good rating or maybe leave a comment. Find me on Twitter at Why Did You Comics. Find me on Facebook by just searching the name of the show there. Music for the podcast is done by my good buddy RJ Jones. Find him on SoundCloud or YouTube. There's strange and scary times out there, guys. I know that. I hope you're all doing your part to bring about the justice and equality that we really, really fucking need in this world. 
I am learning a lot lately. I'm paying attention and I'm trying to do my part. I appreciate you taking the time to listen to the podcast. And as always, we'll see you next week.